It's said that one of the famous composers of old had a son who was a a little bit rebellious, as as, uh, children can be. And this rebellious son, he used to stay out all hours and he used to come back to the house when his uh, father and his mother were asleep in bed. And what he used to do every time he came in late was go to the big uh, grand piano that was in the house, obviously, as as this man was a famous composer. And he would go to the, the grand piano and he would start to play the scale, one of the scales. But he would stop. He would play it loudly. Ding, 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 ding. And then he would stop at the very last note and not play it and then go off and go to bed. And his father, the composer, would have heard this in the night. And being a composer, he, he, he heard him playing the scale and then missing the last note. And, and he would lie in bed and wrestle with this because it wasn't completed. It, hasn't, it hadn't been done. Maybe there's a little bit of OCD in there. But he just couldn't let it go. He couldn't leave it. And he had to get up in the middle of the night and go down and play the last note. And then he could go back and go, go to bed and rest. And what was going on there? The son was purposely trying to wind up the father. He was trying to frustrate him and annoy him. Now, for those of you who have children, you'll have experienced this, I'm sure, where your children seem to go out of their way to annoy you. I'm very blessed. I have two children that never do that. Um, Caden's in here this morning, so I can say that he never goes out of his way to wind me or his mother up. Not at all. No, absolutely he does. Usually it's me more than his mother that gets wound up. And, you know, it's, not, it's just payback, isn't it? Because that's what I did to my father. And I'm sure it goes on generation after generation. And, uh, you know, some of us, we can take pleasure out of annoying and antagonizing people and getting a reaction out of them and frustrating them. You know, those of you that are married, you know, you're probably looking at each other going, I, my wife is an expert at this, or my husband is an expert at this. Claire says I'm an antagonizer. And sometimes I am. Sometimes if I'm a little bit bored, I'll uh, just, you know, see who can get to bite and then watch it explode and then walk off and go. (laughs) But there are those that want to frustrate. You know, as we come in contact with people, we're going to find there are people that will do this. They'll frustrate us. Within the church, there are people that will frustrate us. Like that. <laughs> there are people that will frustrate us. And, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a leader, uh, you know, in church, no, that happens. It happens so much. Hurry up and shut that door. <laughs> See? <laughs> that wasn't planned, that illustration. It wasn't. Some people will will frustrate you. And as a leader, you know, any form of type of ministry and leadership, shepherding people can be very frustrating. People can wind you up with the things that they do when they should know better. And they can really get under your skin at times. And sometimes you want to bang your head against the book. Just part of it. It's part of it. It's not just a ministry, it's throughout life. 
There are people that will frustrate us. There are situations that will get us to that point that will will bring us to the point of frustration. And when we pick up with Ezra this morning, we're going to find that he has just had the news that all is not well within the camp of the people that had returned to uh, Jerusalem. And we're going to see that there's a little bit of frustration there. And that's a kind of natural thing. But what we want to see from Ezra is how he deals with the frustration, how he copes with the frustration, what the outlet for the frustration is, and also what it isn't. Because these things are here in the Word of God for our profit, for our benefit. Remember I said that really, if this was a book that was written by men, chapters 9 and chapter 10 wouldn't be in here. It just wouldn't be in here. Why would you put it in here? If you're writing a report of the people of Israel, it just wouldn't be in here. I was preaching yesterday down in New York to a little group and I said to them, you know, one of the stupidest arguments I've ever heard uh, for somebody that discounts God, you, you can have your reasons why you don't believe in God, but the stupidest one ever is to come along and say that the Bible is a book written by men. That is absolute nonsense if you look at it. It couldn't be written by men. There's no doubt about that. There is no other book like it in existence. None. So you can have your reasons, that's fine, but don't come and say, oh, it's a book written by men. Go and read it. Go and research it. Go and look at the historical accuracies in it. Go and look at the geographical, geographical, I don't even know what that word is, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Look at the accuracies in there. Over 40 different authors, over thousands, hundreds of years, different continents, different people groups. Yet this message, you get to the points where you have these great uh, 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 heroes of, of Judaism, King David, and everything is laid bare before you. All his sins, Moses, everything is laid there. All the things that man wouldn't want you to see, but God wants us to see, are in there. And when we get to chapter number 9 of Ezra, we're going to see that Ezra is indeed frustrated because of what he sees before him, because of what he sees of God's people, what they're doing, how they're behaving and how they should know better. And Ezra gets a little frustrated. And we're going to see how he deals with that this morning. So look with me. First of all, verse number three and four, we're going to find Ezra sitting in astonishment. He's going to go through a range of emotions. First of all, we find him sitting in astonishment. Look at verse three. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished even until the evening sacrifice. So here Ezra receives the news. He receives the news verses 1 and 2, of what is going on in Israel. And, and look at his reaction. You know, his initial reaction tells the tale of where Ezra was at and what Ezra was expecting. Because his initial reaction is complete, one of complete uh, shock. I mean, he's come back. You know, he's just traveled three, three-odd months to get back to Jerusalem. He's been out and about, and he's been preaching and teaching probably for about four months at this point. Then he gets the news back that not all is well, that there's mixed marriage within the, in the camp of Israel, that idolatry is being brought in through the back door, as it were. And he's like befuddled about this because 
God's people have been delivered. God's people have been rescued out of captivity. God's people have been in captivity because of their idolatry. And he's astonished that they're so soon back to the very sin that led them to captivity. And it also points to me that Ezra was expecting something a little bit different when he arrived. It also points to me that maybe the news had come from Jerusalem to uh, Babylon and the, the, uh, the area that things were going really well in Jerusalem. That maybe all the good news was coming back, but none of the reality of what was actually going on. Because human beings are experts in that. Each and every one of us is an expert in that. It's easy to give the good news, but it's very hard for us to share the reality of what's going on in our own lives. How do I know that? Because I'm a pastor. And I ask people, how are you doing? Oh, good. Good. Life could be falling apart. At the same inner turmoil and trouble. Oh, good. I'm good. Off the go. Now, I do this too. Somebody says, how are you doing, Kevin? Oh, I'm good. We all face it. It's easy to say, oh, things are good. Things are going well, isn't it? It's easy to put a front on and project that because that's what we do. That's our human nature. We hate to deal with the reality of what life is in this world. We hate to deal with the reality of who we are and the things that we struggle with and the things that we suffer with. And you know what? That's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to come along when somebody who uh, knows you and loves you, somebody that's in the faith that can give you good care spiritual counsel comes along and says to you how are you doing the devil wants you to say I'm all good but God wants you to speak up and share he wants you to tell the truth it's okay as a believer to say do you know what I'm not doing too good today that's okay that's okay we get this impression that if we're believers that we should constantly always be on the mountaintop. You can't have a mountain without a valley. And sometimes we're in the valleys. Sometimes we're in the difficult places. But we've got to talk. We've got to share. We've got to communicate the truth to each other within our community. God has put us together for that. To bear one another's burdens. That's one of those one another Verses in Scripture. And we may well do a study on that sometime. You should look it up in your own time. One another. One another. It's repeated in the New Testament as church instruction. You can't do one another without one another. One another. So maybe Ezra's heard that all things are good because that's what the people want to be reported. But the reality is all things were not good. And Ezra receives this report. And when he receives this report, he's literally dumbfounded. He's flabbergasted. I like that word. Flabbergasted. What a word. I'll give you the definition of it in case you don't know it or haven't used it before. I'm sure you have. But flabbergasted, as as defined in the dictionary, is feeling or showing intense shock, surprise, or wonder. Utterly astonished. Now, let me ask a question. Have you ever been flabbergasted before? Yes? Uh, And usually it's at what you see transpire before you. 
or what you've seen somebody do or what they've done or a situation or circumstance and your response to it is you're utterly flabbergasted. Now, let me use one of my children again as an illustration. Not this time, Caden, he's safe. We'll use Addison. Addison a few weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, done something completely stupid. I mean, completely stupid. It, It was stupid. That's it. That's all you could do to, to give it a caption to what she did, you would say, that's stupid. Now, some say, oh, you're not allowed to say the word stupid about your children. What she did that day was stupid. I don't care. It was stupid. And my response when I heard to what she'd done, I was flabbergasted at the start. I mean, literally, I was dumbfounded as to how she had done something so stupid out of character not like her. She's not, she's not known for this sort of stuff. And I was utterly, utterly, for a moment, flabbergasted. Speechless. Now, after a few moments, I had a, a few choice words to say, so I regained my speech. That was fine. But at the moment of receiving that news, I was flabbergasted. And, you know, here's what, this is what Ezra's like. He hears this news, and he's literally stopped in his steps. The breath is taken out of him. He is so astonished at what he's hearing, he's literally taken aback. He's taken aback. And what does he do? When he hears this thing, verse 3, look at at his reaction. He rent his garment and his mantle, plucked off the hair of my head and my beard, and I sat down astonished. He rips his clothes. In, in, In Scripture, in the Old Testament Scripture, this is a demonstration of grief and mourning. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37, verse 29. And Reuben returned unto the pit. So this is the story of Joseph. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. Genesis 37, verse 29. Joseph wasn't in the pit, so what does Reuben do? He rips his clothes. He rent his clothes. Why? It's a demonstration of grief, of mourning. Turn to Job. Chapter number 1, verse 20. Good old Job. Having the worst day of his life. (laughs) Says, then Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. He's in grief. Rips his clothes. So when, when somebody in the Old Testament rips her clothes, it can portray largely grief, deep grief and mourning. It can also symbolize indignation, you know, righteous indignation. Turn to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 6. So we've got grief here. We've got mourning here. But also it can mean indignation, righteous indignation. Numbers 14 verse 6. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their Clothes in the context, they're, they're, they're outraged at what's going on. So, not only does Ezra rip his clothes, but he also plucks the hair from his 
head and his beard, and this, you know, again in Scripture, expresses his extreme moral indignation. This is how enraged he is at what has transpired amongst God's people. As a leader of God's people, Ezra knows that they should know better, and he looks upon God's people, and he's seeing what they're doing, he's seeing how they're behaving, he's heard the report, and he is utterly, utterly enraged in righteous anger. He is in grief. He is in mourning. He is beside himself. I would say he's slightly frustrated at what the people of God are doing. End of Ezra chapter 9 verse 3. What does he do? After he's ripped his clothes and he's plucked out the hair of his head and his beard, he sits down astonished. That word astonished, translated astonished in the New King James. But the word astonished, in behind at the root, it literally conveys to be trembling. He's in shock. He's in shock. And he literally sits down. So distraught at the events. So uh, uh, enraged and carrying all this range of emotions at what he's seeing transpire as a leader of God's people. He rips his clothes and he plucks his hair and his beard and he literally slumps to the ground. He falls down and he sits down trembling in shock. Such is the moral indignation. Such is the outrage. Such is the frustration that he literally falls to the floor and trembling at what he's seeing going on with God's people. Now, when we get frustrated, and we will get frustrated at times with God's people, we may not have the extreme reaction that Ezra's had. Maybe I should have said that's what I did with the side of my head. But we do have reaction. And sometimes we can get into that seated, seated position where we're just slumped in our walks, in our life, in our relationship with others. We're literally sat down, so fed up at what's happened or what's going on. And, you know, as, a, as, a, as one in, in ministry and leadership, there are times where I have just sat down astonished. Honestly, sat down astonished at what's going on within God's people. Just ever since I've become a Christian, really. Sometimes I've sat down astonished at what's going on in my own life. I'm not pulling myself up in any holy hell. And the world and the things of the world and people and situation and circumstance can get on top of us. It can get us frustrated and it can get us to the point where we just want to sit down and tell the world to go away and be in that place. But Ezra doesn't stay in that place. He doesn't stay sitting in astonishment. Thanks be to God. Ezra is going to show us the right way to deal with frustration, the right way to deal with circumstances that just come over the top of your head and you just feel like you're completely down and there's no way out. Ezra shows us the way. Remember, a good leader knows the way, shows the way, and goes the way. And that's what Ezra's going to do. He doesn't let his frustration control him and dominate him. He has a moment. 
And that's okay. We're okay to have moments. But moments shouldn't move to months. And months shouldn't move to years. There is a way to deal with the frustration. There's a way to deal with the things that are weighing you down. And Ezra is going to show us the way. And what is the way? Simply this. He moves from sitting in astonishment to kneeling in anguish. Kneeling in anguish. And this is going to deal with the rest of it. We'll read verse 5 of Ezra 9. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. At the time of the evening sacrifice, Ezra rises up from his heaviness. And it is a heavy burden. These are God's people. These are the chosen people. These are the elect people. These are the people that know the oracles of God. These are the people that God has delivered back into the land. They should know better. And it's a heavy burden upon Ezra. And he is frustrated and he is down, but he rises from his heaviness. Beloved, we have to rise from our heaviness and look towards God. And that's what Ezra does. Now, he arises at the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice was a continual burnt offering. And this was the time that Ezra chose to stand up and confess his sin. And it's beautiful because Ezra puts in the personal pronouns. His sin and the sin of the nation. He doesn't stand there separated from the people and say, look at them, Lord, their sin, their sin, their sin. He includes himself in it as part of the body. He says, Lord, we've sinned. And it's the evening sacrifice that he chooses the time to do this. Now, some would say that there were probably other sacrifices that were maybe better sacrifices. It could have been the time that Ezra chose. The sin offering or the trespass offering. But he didn't. He chose this sacrifice. Why did he choose this sacrifice? If you want to find that out, go and study it out yourself. A little bit of homework. I'm not, not going to do it all. I don't have the time to do it all. But it's interesting why he chose that sacrifice. What that sacrifice pictured. And why he chose that time. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't coincidental. He didn't just rise up at some random time and there happened to be a sacrifice on. There's meaning behind that. Go and have a look. Share your answers in the WhatsApp group if you get any. And come and talk to me next week. And we'll, we'll see what you've got. But regardless, what we do know about this sacrifice is that it was a bloody one. That there was a lamb that had to shed its blood for this sacrifice to take place. So what are we saying about that? We're saying that the spiritual principle is that really and truly that there, there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. It means really for us in a spiritual application today that there is no true repentance without going to Calvary's cross. Simple truth. And for the believer today, we still go to Calvary. We highlighted that verse in that hymn, didn't we? Oh, my soul now, lift up to Calvary. And that's what we're to do. So Ezra gets on his knees and cries out to God. And I want you to notice this. I fell upon my knees. This is a completely different position than where he was before in his heaviness. 
He was just sat in his heaviness. He was slumped in his heaviness. Now he rises up and now he gets to the position where he's on his knees before God. I want to say that this position of prayer is another thing I think has been lost. Lost in church. When was the last time as a church we were on our knees before God? Oh, we don't do that because, because you know, that's what the, all the great, you know, the traditional churches, the denominations do, and, you know, they're not doing it properly, and they're not praying unto the real God, and some of them aren't saved, etc., etc., etc. But what we've done there is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Same with fasting, it's the same thing. You know, this principle of getting on our knees before God is a biblical one, not just an Old Testament one, it's a biblical one. And it's times where we get before God when we are in anguish, when we're desperately seeking Him, that we show Him the reverence and we bow the knee and we get on our knees before Him and we pray unto Him. Now, we shouldn't abuse this and turn, you know, let's get the pews back and get the little cushions. doesn't mean that we can't pray in any position to God. But there are times where I think we should be on our knees before God. And seeking his face. Um, you know, it's, it's a reverent attitude towards God. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Again, these are not Old Testament scriptures. Acts chapter 20, verse 36. Acts 20, verse 36. And when he had thus spoken, this is Paul, he kneeled down, and prayed with them all. What does he do? He kneels down and he prays. Oh, kneeling in prayer, that's Old Testament. Tell Paul. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Question, church. When was the last time you lead them prayer to God? For some of us, if we've grown up in a Christian home, or we've been Christians for a long time, some of us it may have been when we were a little one, on our bed, <laughs> praying. But when was the last time we got on our knees before God? I must confess, I can't remember the last time I got my knees before God. I think the last time I got my knees before God, I was in the midst of the valley of all valleys. But I don't think we should lose the practice. I think we should respect it. I don't think we should abuse it. But I think there is a place for it. And here Ezra is kneeling before God in anguish. He's risen up from his heaviness and he knows the only place that he can go. He can't keep sitting in astonishment. He can't sit and stay in that place. He's had a moment, but now he has to move from that moment. And now he gets in his knees before God and he brings that anguish to God. And from verse 6 on, we're going to see Ezra's prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer before God. Uh, um, you know, Similar to, to Nehemiah. Nehemiah cries out in the same way. Really, the foundation for this type of prayer is found in, in Daniel. In Daniel's prayer, in Daniel 9. After, I'll read you verse 5. When Daniel says, We have sinned and have committed iniquity 
iniquity and have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. This is the prayer of anguish of Daniel before God. This is the prayer of anguish of Ezra before God. This is the prayer of anguish of Nehemiah before God. This should be our prayer of anguish before God for the church. And I mean the church as a whole because we have strayed. And I'm not picking on our church. I'm saying the church, the body of Christ. We have strayed from him. We have walked from him. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity and done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from his word, his precepts, and his judgments. And it's not them, it's us. We are the body. And we have to pray in anguish like this. Getting our knees before God. Sometimes it's easy to just take apart bad theology and bad practice. But for those that are born again, that have strayed in some of their doctrinal teachings, We have to pray in anguish. Not at them, but with them. Like Daniel does. Like Ezra does. Ezra hadn't done anything wrong. Daniel hadn't done anything wrong. But they enter into this place of anguish at what's going on in the body. And they identify with the body and say, We have sinned. We have sinned. And Ezra's prayer is, 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 is beautiful. It's beautiful. And we'll spend our, our remaining time just looking at some of the points. And it's a powerful prayer from Ezra. Look at verse 6. Ezra recognizes the present position of God's people. And he says this, And said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. I'm embarrassed. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up onto the heavens. So ashamed of the sin, Ezra can hardly lift his face towards God. The moral sins are a burden to Ezra, and they're a burden to people, and their trespass of their iniquities has gone up to heaven. And Ezra's ashamed. He's embarrassed because God's people should know better. They should know better. Verse 7, he reflects on the history of God's people. Since the days of our fathers, we have, been, have we been in great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities, have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity and to spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. Ezra reflects upon the history of God's people. How they keep going through this cycle where they don't learn. Where they keep falling into sin. And God has to chastise them. God has to deal with them to try and help them get out of that sin and to, uh, you know, to banish idolatry from the land and push it out. And there's been captivities and, and uh, you know, great loss within the people. And it's to their shame that confusion of face is, is the thought of being in a state of humiliation and embarrassment. And so should they have been. They were God's people. They were elect. They were chosen as a nation, as a corporate body, not as individuals, as a body to be those that were trusted with the privilege 
of taking the word of God to the world. And this is what they spent their time doing. And round and round it went. Verse 8 and 9, Ezra recalls the return and the recovery under those foreign kings. Look, verse 8. And now for a little time, or a little space, hath, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. I love that. Ezra recognizes that they're back in the land. Why? Because of the grace of God. Not because of their own efforts. Not because of their own abilities. Not because of their own political lobbying or whatever it may be. This was God's grace. He had given them a little space to get back to where they should be. He hasn't given us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Because they weren't free still. They'd just been given a little space. They were still in bondage, not completely free. Verse 9, for we were bondmen, yet our king, God, has not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem, all because of the grace of God. Everything that those people had was because of the grace of God. Then verse 10 and 11, Ezra reviews the situation. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? How should we respond to what God has done for us? That's the question that that Ezra is asking in his prayer of anguish. God, you've delivered us since the days of our fathers. We have rebelled, we've sinned, we've gone through this cycle over and over again. But you've given us a little space. Your grace has given us time to come to you and repent and get back. And you've given us back the holy temple. You've allowed us to come back to Jerusalem. You've given us all these things because of your grace and your mercy. But now, oh God, what shall we say after that? What should we do? For we have forsaken your commandments. Any wonder Ezra's embarrassed and ashamed? Any wonder he's in anguish? All God has done, yet still they're forsaken his word. Verse 11, which they has commanded by the servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you go in to possess it is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people of the land, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take your daughters unto their sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. They knew what to do. They knew better. They knew they had to separate from the filthiness and the wicked practices and the wicked people of that land. They knew they had to be a separated people onto God. They knew they weren't to give their daughters and their sons. They knew they were to eat of the good of the land. They were to leave it for an inheritance for their children. It wasn't just their lives. It was those that were coming after them. This was the responsibility of God's people. 
Not just for them, but for those that came down the line. Verse 14, verse 13, sorry. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespasses, seeing that they are God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. Ezra recognizes they deserve judgment. They receive mercy. Verse 14, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations. Wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for you remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee on our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Ezra is absolutely in anguish as he recounts the history of God's people and the behavior of God's people in the Old Testament covenant. Now, the spiritual application here, I could take all of these things, and by way of interpretation, it's Israel in view, no doubt about it. But by spiritual application, I could apply this to the body of Christ. Because God has delivered us, yet we remain in our iniquities. God has pulled us out of the world. He has saved us. He has set us upon a rock. But yet, what? We fall for the same old things and we go back to the world and we go round and round. And God's people behave in a worldly way. But why should we ever do that? Because what has God done for us? He's delivered us. He's saved us. He's sanctified us. But yet we go back to the world like it done anything for us. And we should be ashamed. And we should hang our heads in anguish. And we should pray to God for his church. Because there's nothing new under the sun. This is not Israel behavior. This is human behavior. And we, as the people of grace, are as guilty as they were, as the people of the covenant. We abuse the grace and mercies of God. The things that we've been given, we throw them back at God. And shame on us when we do that. Ezra, we find... That receiving the news ends up sitting in astonishment. He's frustrated. It's getting on top of him. But he doesn't stay there. He moves to the position of worship. He moves to the position of prayer. He kneels in anguish and goes to God. That is the outlet. That is the place where we are to take our frustrations and our distresses. We are to get on our knees before God and say, God... Here it is. Pour it out before him. That's what the psalmist did. Sometimes we should be writing our own psalms before God. Pouring our hearts out before him. 
We're not to allow the frustration to get on top of us. So here's the application. Here's the spiritual application that Ezra teaches us. And we want to take away this morning. One thing you want to take away. We must not allow our frustration to dominate us. But rather we must instead use it to direct us towards God. That's the correct range of emotions. Have your moment, but don't make it a month. Have your moment. Have your sitting in astonishment. But make sure that it takes your eyes off of the problem and up towards God and move from sitting in astonishment to kneeling in anguish, if that's what it takes before God, Pour it all out before him. Bend our knees to the one who is holy and high and lifted up and has put his ear towards us that he wants to hear from us. And he's got big shoulders. He can bear it. We cannot. We cannot. So brethren, if you have on your heart this morning frustration at your situation, at your circumstance, at people, at your pastor, whatever it may be. Don't sit in your frustration. Get on your knees before God. Take it before him. Use the correct range of emotions and give it all to God because he can take it. And that's what Ezra shows us this morning. Let's pray.